Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th Wartime Diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating Wartime Diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Hey guys, it's Mishi. With all the excitement around the U.S. elections, It's perhaps easy to forget that this week marks the 25th anniversary of the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. And as we work on our next new episode, we wanted to replay an episode that we released exactly five years ago, on the occasion of the 20th anniversary of the murder. Back then, this episode aired early in our second season, we set out to explore six very different Rabins. So without further ado, Here's our 2015 episode, Rabin Is. Just about two months before November 4th, 1995, I began 7th grade. And in Israel, that's the start of junior high. So, new school, new building, all the other kids are new too. You have to figure out really quickly which group to join. The science nerds, the hippies, the Nirvana fans. You do your best to score some goals in soccer games during recess because that's the surest way to become popular. Anyway, hectic times. So I was really looking forward to November 4th, it was a Saturday, because my entire old class from 6th grade were invited to Maya Baral's bat mitzvah. 
I hadn't seen most of them since school ended the previous summer. We had basically all gone to different junior highs. But it just felt familiar and right the minute we met up at synagogue that morning. We slipped right back into our old roles, with all the same dynamics which had been established since kindergarten. And in that group, I was part of the cool kids. At Maya Bara's bat mitzvah, being part of the cool kids meant leading the boys to the balcony of the synagogue. There's this tradition at bar and bat mitzvahs to throw candy at the kid once they've finished reading the Torah. Usually it's soft toffee so no one gets hurt. But Maya's parents handed out hard candy, and I convinced the boys to play a game. We would unwrap the hard candy, lick it, throw it, and you'd get five points if you could get it to stick to the rabbi's bald head. I lost. I think Jonathan Yudkovich won. Anyway, after the services, we went to Sacker Park, Jerusalem's main grassy area, and played ball. My best friend Yoav's dad suggested that we play touch football. At sports, at least, I was much more Israeli than American, so I didn't know the rules. Everyone else did. So every time I'd catch the ball, I'd try to pass it, because I didn't know you had to run with it. Everyone was yelling at me. We played all afternoon, and by the time Yoav's parents dropped me at home, I was zonked. My big brother Oren was going to Tel Aviv for a peace rally. I wanted to go with him, but my mom said I couldn't. I remember all of this because the next morning, really early, both my parents woke me up. My mom was crying. My dad looked as if he hadn't slept all night. My first thought was that my safta, my grandma, had died, but she hadn't. My mom held my hand and said, Mishi, they killed Rabin. Yitzhak Rabin was our prime minister, and I was obsessed with politics. I had a poster of Rabin in my room, and my favorite t-shirt was one I'd gotten at an election rally three years earlier, when Rabin won and became prime minister. Israel mechakali Rabin, it said. Israel's waiting for Rabin. A few years later, I was watching TV. My favorite show, Chamishia Kamerit, was on. It was everyone's favorite show at the time, sort of a local SNL with little skits about politics and just life in general in Israel. In this particular skit, which later became really famous, there's an MTV-style call-in show where school children can ask questions. Hello. One girl, Ahuva, calls in and says that she's having some trouble with an assignment she got at school. What's it about, the host asks. And she says that they need to write an essay with pros and cons of the Rabin assassination. Oh, I see, he answers. And you're probably having a hard time coming up with the pros? There's a pause for a second, and then Ahuva replies, No, I just don't know who Rabin is. I guess that skit worked because at the time there was this sense or fear that Rabin would be forgotten that enough time would pass that people wouldn't even know who he was anymore. But that hasn't happened. This week is the 20th anniversary of that assassination, and Rabin hasn't been forgotten. It's more like he's multiplied. To mean everything, and be everywhere. We thought that the best place to start was with the person who knew Rabin the longest. Act 1, Rabin is my brother. Shalom, Rachel. כן, שלום, מדבר מישי הרמן. מה שלומך? רחל רבין, יצחק רבין's little sister, isn't so little anymore. She's almost 91 and she lives alone at the very edge of the country, in Kibbutz Manara, less than 100 meters from the border with Lebanon. 
She had told us to call when we got to the entrance of the kibbutz, so that she could direct us to her house. Somewhat embarrassingly, and even though there are only like two and a half streets in the whole place, we got lost. When we finally pulled into her driveway, she looked at us and with half a smile said, Guys, you you really screwed up, huh? You wouldn't guess her age if you saw her. She has a quick step, a long white braid, and a young voice. But the main thing you notice about her immediately is that she looks exactly like her brother. She gave us some coffee and slices of an apple pie she had made. We sat in her tiny apartment, and as if we were talking about yesterday, Rachel took us back to the early 1930s in Tel Aviv. Our parents were always very busy, and so we were alone a lot of the time, and somehow Yitzhak always felt he was responsible for me, that he needed to take care of me, to protect me, and that's how I felt. I mean, till his last day, really, I felt he was protecting me, even from afar. One day, I remember we went to see a movie. That was a big deal in those days, and I cried my eyes out. And Yitzhak, he said to me, I'm never going to take you to the movies again. The film's barely started and you're already crying, even if it's not sad. So I said, okay, I promise not to cry at the movies anymore. Even though we know that our leaders were all just once normal kids, it's kind of funny to imagine a national icon like Rabin going to a school dance and waiting sheepishly for some girl to smile at him. Yitzhak was a shy kid, closed, really quiet. You know, one of those don't-touch-me-and-I-won't-touch-you kind of kids. He wasn't one of the popular or loud kids. But he was a good athlete. He was good at soccer, and his friends would come over to play soccer in the street. They didn't want me to bother them, so they'd make me the goalie. We spent about three hours with Rachel, and I'm going to say that I've never been with anyone who receives as many phone calls as she does. There were journalists, of course, old friends of Yitzchak calling to check in on her, neighbors, grandchildren, and, I kid you not, someone who called to say that they had gone to the same summer camp as Rachel in 1935 and wanted to know whether she remembered the words to the camp anthem. She did. Before we left, Rachel took us to the den where she keeps all her memorabilia. She pointed to the wall to a large faded picture of their mom, Rosa, holding her two kids, five-year-old Yitzchak in sort of a blue-and-white sailor's outfit, and two-year-old Rachel with short, curly hair. She showed us part of a Katyusha bomb that had landed in her living room. And then she opened folders where, in individual plastic sheets, she keeps dozens and dozens of letters from Yitzchak. She took out a few, and as she began reading them to us, I thought about what it's like to share your big brother with an entire country, to have so many people feel as if they had a special relationship to him, even though they never even knew him, let alone fought with him about who'd do the dishes. Rachel talks about her big brother with admiration and respect, and from all the letters you can tell just how much he loved her, too. But like all of us, even with her, there's a sense that something wasn't completely equal. In the 60s, 
Once her brother had already become a war hero and a public figure, he was on the radio, talking about his childhood. My dad and I sat here in the living room and listened to the show. And Yitzhak was talking about how lonely he felt at home growing up. And I was really surprised since I never felt lonely. So I called him up afterwards and we tried to understand why we had such different memories. And then I realized that I was never lonely because I had him. He was always around. And I guess I just wasn't the same kind of rock for him as he was for me. I was just his little sister. I just miss him so much. In the years after Rachel and Yitzchak shared a small bedroom that doubled as the guest room, they went in very different directions. She established her kibbutz in the Upper Galilee and was a high school biology teacher till she retired. He became a soldier in the Palmach, the pre-state troops, and then in 1948, in the War of Independence, he was the commander of Chativat Harel, the brigade that opened the route to Jerusalem. He quickly rose through the ranks of the newly formed IDF till, in 1964, he became its chief of staff. Rabin led the army to its crushing victory in the Six-Day War, and was kind of a national rock star. Teenagers would ask for his autograph on the street. When he left the military after 27 years, he was appointed to be Israel's ambassador in America. How would you describe or assess the state of relations at this point in time between Washington and Jerusalem? Well, uh, there, there is a difference of opinion. Uh, you know very well what, uh, what Israel believes. And after that, he joined politics, first becoming Golda Meir's minister of labor, and then when she resigned in 1974 after the Yom Kippur War, he was named Israel's fifth prime minister. Good evening. I would like uh, to explain what has been done uh, today in the Knesset. He was a different kind of politician. For starters, he was young, a member of a new generation that hadn't come from Europe. He was a tzabal, born and raised here, a man of the land. But his term as prime minister was anything but glorious. He was considered a mediocre leader. And in 1977, when a report came out about an illegal bank account that his wife Leah held abroad, he resigned. He lost control of the Labour Party, and his big rival, Shimon Peres, was selected to run in the general elections. Peres lost to Begin, the first time the right-wing Likud party came to power. So, at the age of 55, Rabin had basically become a has-been. He wasn't very popular anymore, just kind of living a normal life. That's where our next story picks up. Act 2, Rabin is just a guy. We used to eat in restaurants. You had hummus and kebab, and that's all. 
No lobster, no shrimps, no, no like uh, the other. Hummus and kebab and that's all. And some whiskey. More than some whiskey. Meir Palevsky is a private detective. He lives alone in Tel Aviv. He smokes a lot, writes a lot of Facebook statuses. Meir and Rabin had a very special relationship. They were friends, but not only. Meir doesn't like the term, but he was Rabin's fixer. That guy that takes care of things. Things that a politician needs, but can't really know about. They met after Rabin had resigned the prime ministership. It was the end of the 70s. We were in the reserve in the army in the Sinai Desert. As some soldiers, some reserve soldiers. Ordinary people. Like me, I'm not ordinary, but everybody is ordinary. Begin was the prime minister then. And we were not happy about what's going on in the country. So we discussed the situation and decided that, that we need another prime minister. And we decided between us that Rabin is the person that can lead the country and do it better. So we went home after the reserve. We found his phone number in the book. His private home is in his apartment. We called him. We asked for a meeting. We came to the office. His handshake was very shaky. He was a general in the army and so on, but he was not a macho. He was like a university lecturer or something. He didn't look in the eyes. He looked down. And he said, fellows, what can I do for you? He said, we want you, I said, I want you to be the prime minister. So he sat back. He was a little bit startled. You need to understand, at the same time, Rabin, he was at the back benches of the, of the party. Nobody cared about him. He was alone. Nobody cared about him, except us. We kept talking about the idea. He didn't commit, but he was interested. And we decided that at the end of the meeting that we'll make a gathering at my home with 50, 40, 50, 60 people. We will talk to them and we, we see the atmosphere. We were sitting, a lot of people in my apartment, 60 people sitting in one room, sitting on the floor and everywhere. Robin was sitting on a chair like this and I was beside him and everybody is around. And he started telling us memories of the time that he was the prime minister. The finance minister came to him with the problem of the inflation, and suddenly the unions of the teacher began striking. And in the middle of all this mess, prime minister of Canada, Trudeau, came to Israel. It was a boring lecture. It was so boring that everybody started moving. So one of my friends asked him, did Trudeau brought his wife? Trudeau's wife, she was a famous, beautiful woman that the gossip said she had a flirt or a romance with Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. So <laughs> Rabbi said, yes, sure, he said. How is the wife? He said, in English, nothing to write home about. 
she was a famous, beautiful woman. So my friend insisted, said, everybody is saying that she is beautiful. He didn't answer. And people start moving and, and they didn't like the atmosphere. The evening is going very wrong. I was not happy. So at that point, I decided I must make a move to salvage this evening. If I fail, I fail. If I succeed, we will succeed. So I opened my mouth, and I have a big mouth, and said, Yitzchak. You, don't, you never call him Yitzchak. Sometimes you call him respectfully Yitzchak. But I said loudly and clearly, Yitzchak. I'm trying to translate it in very... I'm trying to find the words. Okay. Yitzchak. Would you fuck her? Everybody started laughing. And his wife, she sent me a raise of fire from her eyes. He didn't answer, but he became free because, uh, you know, he was 40 years in the army. You know how people in the army are, uh, the language of the people in the army. So the atmosphere became very friendly, and the evening became a big success. Everybody was very happy with him. Everybody joined our group, our rubbing group, and the rest is history. At the end of the evening, he, his wife, stayed with me and my wife with some whiskey. And he said in his voice, Mayor, don't do it again. So I said, Yitzchak, you started. Ultimately, whether or not that exchange about Trudeau's wife actually served as a pivotal moment, Rabin's career got back on track. There was a national unity government, and Rabin served as the defense minister. These were the days of the First Intifada, the popular Palestinian uprising and Rabin was a hardliner. He famously said that Israeli soldiers shouldn't shoot at the Palestinian protesters and stone-throwers, but should break their arms and legs. He was Mr. Security, and in 1992, he finally beat his nemesis, Peres, in the Labour Party primaries. In June of that year, he led the Labour Party to a resounding victory in the general elections, in a campaign which mainly emphasized his personal popularity. That's when I got that Israel is waiting for Rabin t-shirt. The night of his election, at least in my home, there was a lot of excitement. <laughs> Almost immediately, Rabin set off on a new path. It included negotiations with the PLO and their leader, Yasser Arafat. These were the Oslo Accords, which recognized the PLO and granted the Palestinian Authority partial control in Gaza and several cities in the West Bank. On September 13, 1993, I remember listening to the radio with my mom in the car when Rabin, somewhat reluctantly, shook Arafat's hand on the south lawn of the White House. My mom looked at me with tears of disbelief in her eyes and said, Remember this moment, Mishi. We who have fought against you, the Palestinians, 
we say to you today in a loud and a clear voice, enough of blood and tears. Enough! The next year, we made peace with King Hussein of Jordan, and Rabin Peres and Arafat flew to Oslo to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. People were talking about a peace treaty with Syria, and there was this general sense of hope in the air. We could actually end this bloody struggle. Ladies and gentlemen, the time for peace has come. Of course, not everyone shared those feelings. Terror attacks continued, and the right blamed Rabin, saying that his agreements gave the Palestinians guns, which were now being used to kill Israelis. He was giving away the lands, they claimed. And before long, the more extreme voices began calling Rabin a traitor, a murderer. There were rabbis in the West Bank who performed pulsa denura ceremonies against Rabin, basically kind of a ritual curse. Some said outright that he should be killed. And the demonstrations got more and more hateful. In one big rally in Jerusalem Zion Square on October 5, 1995, the political leadership of the right, including Bibi Netanyahu, Ariel Sharon, and many others, gave speeches from a balcony. Below them, the demonstrators handed out leaflets with a picture of Rabin dressed in an SS uniform. Dead doves were sent to Rabin's office, even to his home. Some youngsters vandalized his car, and one religious man tried to assault him at the end of an event he attended. As all this violent rhetoric escalated, the left began planning a counter-demonstration, which would take place a month later in Tel Aviv's main square. The slogan for the rally was Ken la Shalom, lo la limut, Yes to peace, no to violence. The organizers didn't know how many people would show up, and Rabin was nervous. The elections were less than a year away, and he needed a strong showing of support to continue with his peacemaking policies. People we talked to told us that Rabin himself sent them to scout out the square and report back every hour how many people were coming. If it was just a few thousand, he thought, he might say he came down with a sore throat. But there was no need for excuses. The square was packed. Rabin spoke a speech which has since become part of Israeli history about how violence eats away at the foundations of democracy. He said that that wasn't our way. We solve things in democratic elections, not by violence. At the end of the rally, the leadership of the left stood together and sang Rabin Couldn't Carry a Tune, a song called Shir Shalom, a song for peace. Everyone felt exhilarated, including Rabin. It had been a big success. Then he walked down the stairs to his car. That's where Igal Amir, the assassin, was waiting. Act 3, Rabin is dead. 
Like the JFK assassination, everyone remembers what they were doing when they heard the news. For Aliza Gorin, that isn't so hard. She was one of the people closest to the news. My name is Aliza Gorin, and uh, I'm a businesswoman. I was used to be the spokesperson for uh, Prime Minister, the late Prime Minister Rabin, until uh, the minute he died. Matan Dishon, on the other hand, was more or less the farthest you could get from the news. My name is uh, Matan Dishon. Twenty years ago, we were serving in a post in Lebanon in the security zone. Together, they tell the story of that night, November 4th, 1995. So at that night, it was a winter, of course, and it was uh, probably cold and muddy as usual. That night, we had a big rally in Tel Aviv. And Rabin was, um, he wasn't sure he wants to do it, and he had to be convinced. We were doing uh, this mission, this type of mission is called a stakeout, Marav Betten. Marav Betten. Marav is a stakeout, and the Betten is like belly. Probably around uh, 10 or so uh, soldiers. You just lie on your belly out all through the night in the mud and uh, watch over whatever. The place was full with people. There were about a quarter of a million people at that rally. A very big uh, demonstration in Israel. And uh, they were all carrying signs, supporting him, supporting his acts, supporting peace. It was so nice, and, and Rabin was so happy. And uh, at the end of it, they sang uh, the song of peace. That part of Lebanon is really beautiful. Quite high uh, mountains. They're green, I, I guess, most of the year. There's rivers running below this ridge, uh, for instance, um, and there's quite uh, nice cliffs. I mean, the, it's a really nice uh, place to be in terms of the, the, the wilderness, the view. But there isn't even one second that you, that you can forget uh, that it's really dangerous. He started uh, saying goodbye to everybody and I escorted him to the car. We went downstairs, the car was waiting for him. The uh, bodyguard was walking behind him. There were a lot of policemen around there. And I was walking behind the uh, bodyguard and um, he kept saying goodbye to people, you know, while uh, stepping down the stairs. And uh, suddenly I heard uh, shots. And suddenly we see, as far as the eye can see, flares, shootings. We hear a lot of gunshots in the air. Now... I've never heard shots before. I mean, I've, I've never witnessed a, a, a scenery like this. And I saw that he fell. And in a minute, it was, the car was vanished. I mean, they, they drove off. They, put, they threw him into the car, and they drove off. And I was standing there, and I, I couldn't... Uh, I kept thinking, what, what happened? So I think my initial thought was uh, that the stakeout was discovered and we're under some kind of attack because you hear gunshots and you see all these flares in the air. And then the next thought was uh, that it's very widespread across uh, Lebanon. I mean, it's all of Nabatia and all of the villages around. 
shooting, shooting in the air and these flares and the fireworks and so on. So it's probably not about us, but something is happening. And then I saw a pile of people lying one on top of the others. And at the bottom was Igal Amir, the murderer, the filthy murderer. I believe I thought it was some kind of celebration, some kind of uh, Lebanese holiday celebration or something like that. And I was standing there and I, I said, what am I going to do? I have to call and see where he, he went, Robin, and if something happened to him. The only number I could remember at this moment was the number of the uh, uh, military attaché of Robin, Danny Atom. So I called him up. And then we radioed back to the post, what's going on? And I said, listen, Danny, um, I think they shot Robin. He said, what are you talking about? In the beginning, he was yelling at me that I'm imagining things. And I said, listen, they shot him, and I have to know where he, he went. He said, I'll get back to you in a minute. And then the reaction was quite surprising, something we didn't hear uh, anywhere uh, before, saying something like, in Hebrew it's a kod kod ineno. The blue and white vertex is gone. So I have to, uh, to explain that, that sentence probably. Blue and white is a code, is a radio code for Israel. And um, vertex is a general uh, radio code for uh, an officer. He got back to me in a few minutes and he said uh, they took him to the Ichilo hospital, which was like a mile, a mile and a half away. But my car was parked so far and I started running by foot. And uh, at some point my assistant uh, drove next to me and, t- and drove me the rest of the way. We dismantled this uh, stakeout. Uh, we, we went back to the post uh, very early. I guess I started thinking about who, who is gone. Who, who is this person who is gone and what, what's all these celebrations? When I got there, I went downstairs. I saw uh, Mrs. Rabin with uh, the driver. And he, he told me, the driver told me, listen, they shot him in the back. And uh, he was wounded. And I said, what are you, doctor? And she was standing there, speechless, uh, Leah Robin. We went downstairs um, where the operations room were. And, uh, oh, we waited, I think, about an hour and a half, two hours. I guess we were very alert because of all these shootings and flares and so on. I also guess that we we're maybe a little bit happy to go back to the post instead of uh, spending the night uh, on our bellies in the mud. So uh, I believe that was our state of mind at that point. While waiting, uh, people started gathering there, all the cabinet members, you know, some of the security forces, uh, the chief of staff. And then uh, the uh, director general of the hospital came out and he said, uh, I'm sorry, but he died. And we couldn't believe it. Guessing that uh, Rabin was dead, killed, assassinated, that's of course uh, out of anyone's imagination at that point. But uh, we found out that uh, our prime minister uh, was uh, assassinated. And 
we were of course shocked. But I must say that uh, the missions in the post were overwhelming even on this event. A few people, uh, his wife, his kids, Shimon Peres, uh, another cabinet member by the name of Ephraim Sne, Danny Atom, who was uh, the military attaché and me, maybe another person, I don't remember, went to uh, see the body. And um, he was lying there covered with uh, sheets. And um, uh, he had a, a bruise on his forehead because he fell. He was lying there so calm. It was terrible, really terrible. Everybody went and kissed his forehead. I was just standing there. I couldn't, I couldn't touch him. I just, uh, I was the only one that didn't touch him and didn't kiss his forehead. I just stood there and looked at him. That's it. When we came back to Israel after about four weeks, we really realized what happened and could really stop and think about it. And then it was... Um, it felt real, you know, like a, like a backstabbing. I thought that uh, it's the end of Israel. That Israel will never be able to get back to what it was. That evil has prevailed. That injustice has prevailed. That the incitement succeeded in an undemocratic way. And I think it's, um, we still feel it until today. That piece was by Shoshi Shmulovitz, with original music from Colin Oldham. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, and now back to the rerun of our 2015 episode, Rabin Is. Edgar Keret, an author and a regular contributor to our show, lives less than a 10-minute walk from Kikar Malchei Israel, the square where Rabin was murdered. One of his most iconic short stories is actually about Rabin. Yochai Meital and I went to talk to him about that story. It's called Rabin is Dead. But Rabin in the title of the story isn't THE Rabin. Act four, Rabin is a cat. I got a lot of bad reactions. Kind of people said, how dare you write a story about a cat named Rabin, you know? This means that you really didn't like Rabin, that you didn't believe in the peace process, that you hate your own country, you know? And the world thinks that uh, calling a gariatric hospital in which people pee on themselves uh, Rabin's hospital is very respectable, or calling a, a dead-end street that is all dirty, Rabin street is... Wonderful, but calling the animal that they love the most uh, after Rabin is something that uh, is not acceptable. So uh, this is kind of how I sat down and started writing the story. 
Here's Edgar's story, read to us by Neil Friedlander. Robin's dead. It happened last night. He got run over by a scooter with a sidecar. Robin died on the spot. The guy on the scooter got hurt real bad and passed out, and they took him away in an ambulance. They didn't even touch Robin. He was so dead there was nothing they could do. So me and Tiran picked him up and buried him in my backyard. I cried after that, and Tiran lit up and told me to stop crying because I was getting on his nerves. But I didn't stop, and pretty soon he started crying too. Because I really loved Rabin a lot, but Tiran loved him even more. Then we went to Tiran's house, and there was a cop on the front stairs waiting to bag him. Because the guy on the scooter came too and squealed to the doctors at the hospital. He told them Tiran had bashed his helmet in with a crowbar. The cop asked Tiran why he was crying, and Tiran said, Who's crying, you fascist motherfucking pig? The cop smacked him once, and Tiran's father came out and wanted to take down the cop's name and stuff, but the cop wouldn't tell him, and in less than five minutes there must have been like 30 neighbors standing there. The cop told them to take it easy, and they told him to take it easy himself. There was a lot of shoving, and it looked like someone was going to get clobbered again. Finally, the cop left, and Tiran's dad sat us both down in their living room and gave us some Sprite. He told Tiran to tell him what happened and make it quick before the cop returned with backup. So Tiran told him he'd hit someone with a crowbar, but that it was someone who had it coming, and that the guide squealed to the police. Tiran's dad asked what exactly he had it coming for, and I could see right away that he was pissed off. So I told him it was the guy on the scooter that started it. Because first he ran Rabin over with his sidecar. Then he called us names, and then he went and slapped me too. Tiran's dad asked him if it was true. And Tiran didn't answer, but he nodded. I could tell that he was dying for a cigarette, but he was afraid to smoke next to his dad. We found Rabin in the square. As soon as we got off the bus, we spotted him. He was just a kitten then, and he was so cold he was trembling. Me and Tiran, and this uptown girl with a navel stud that we met there, we went to get him some milk. But at Espresso Bar, they wouldn't give us any. And at Burger Ranch, they didn't have milk, because they're a meat place and they're kosher so they don't sell dairy stuff. Finally, at the grocery store on Frischmann Street, they gave us a half pint and an empty yogurt cup, and we poured him some milk and he lapped it all up in one go. And Avishag, that was the name of the girl with the stud, said we ought to call him Shalom, because Shalom means peace, and we'd found him right in the square where Rabin died for peace. Tiran nodded and asked her for her phone number, and she told him he was really cute, but that she had a boyfriend in the army. After she left, Tiran patted the kitten and said we'd never in a million years call him Shalom, because Shalom is a sissy name. He said we'd call him Rabin, and that the broad and her boyfriend in the army could go fuck themselves for all he cared, because maybe she had a pretty face, but her body was really weird. Tiran's dad told Tiran it was lucky he was still a minor, but even that might not do him much good this time, because bashing people with a crowbar isn't like stealing chewing gum from a candy store. Tiran still didn't say anything, and I could tell he was about to start crying again. So I told Tiran's dad that it was all my fault, because when Rabin was run over, I was the one who yelled it to Tiran. And the guy on the scooter, who was kind of nice at first and even seemed sorry about what he'd done, asked me what I was screaming for. And it was only when I told him that the cat's name was Rabin that he lost his cool and slapped me. And Tiran told his dad, First, the shit doesn't stop at the stop sign. Then he runs over our cat. And after all that, he goes and slaps Sinai. What did you expect me to do? Let him get away with it? And Tiran's dad didn't answer. He lit a cigarette, and without making a big deal about it, 
lit one for Tiran, too. And Tiran said the best thing I could do would be to beat it before the cops came back so that at least one of us would stay out of it. I told him to lay off, but his dad insisted. Before I went upstairs, I stopped for a minute at Rabin's monument and thought about what would have happened if we hadn't found him, about what his life would have been like then. Maybe he'd have frozen to death, but probably someone else would have found him and taken him home, and then he wouldn't have been run over. Everything in life is just luck, even the original Rabin. After everyone sang the hymn to peace at the big rally in the square, if instead of going down those stairs he'd hung around a little longer, he'd still be alive. And they would have shot Paris instead. At least that's what they said on TV. Or else, if the broad in the square wouldn't have had that boyfriend in the army, and she'd given Tiran her phone number, and we'd called Rabin Shalom, then he would have been run over anyway. But at least nobody would have to get clobbered. I'm constantly thinking, like, is there, is there an allegory here that I'm not getting? I didn't write it as an allegory. And I think that the thing that connected me the most to this kind of, let's say, collective emotion that I felt in Israel after the assassination of, of Rabin was this idea that everybody was in pain and everybody was really, really sad. But a lot of the people, instead of uh, showing this, sadness or vulnerability, they turned into some kind of aggression. I think that there is something about Israeli mentality that whenever you have a pain or vulnerabilities and you automatically uh, try to transform it to something that is more kind of a macho-like or more kind of a defendable, which in, in this case would be to take your anger out on somebody. When I wrote the story, I wanted to write a story about some kind of ritual of memory and but I think that what came out of it was really this kind of a, a inability to share your pain and how this inability to share your pain turns pain into aggression. This aggression was something that Edgar witnessed personally on the very night of the assassination. When uh, Rabin was assassinated, I was uh, watching with a friend a trashy film on TV. We were really, really bored. One of us, I don't know, his girlfriend dumped him and... I remember that we were really, really depressed that day anyway. And then the, and the mov- movie was really, really bad. We just saw it because it was kind of pre-cable time. So it was the only thing that you could see on TV. And then uh, they stopped showing the film and they started uh, talking that something happened in the square. And my friend said, I must have a drink. So we, we turned off the TV and we went outside of his house, there was a, a pub in La Salle Street, which is now closed, it, it doesn't exist anymore, and we went there and they were closing the place because, because of, of Rabin's assassination and he said, just give me a beer for the way, my friend, and the, the guy said to him I can't sell you beer, Rabin was assassinated so my friend said, I want to have a beer to mourn for him, I want to drink a beer in his memory and the, the bartender said, you're shitting with me? And he said, no, you're shitting with me. And like in 20 seconds, they almost had a fight. They almost had a punch fight. And you, you felt that both of them were very, very volatile. But that uh, their emotion kind of turned into some kind of anger toward the world. And I remember myself kind of in a style street, both of them kind of trying to punch each other and me pushing them to two sides. And both of them were much bigger than me. And so this is kind of my memory, this kind of eruption of uh, violence that had nothing to do 
with reality. I never saw my friend get into a fight, you know. I, I, how do you see people in Tel Aviv get into fights? And this kind of fight that I felt was all, kind, all came from this kind of pain and anger that had to be ventilated somewhere. And me there kind of trying to stop it in a, in a very unsuccessful way. And how is Edgar going to mark the 20th anniversary of Rabin's assassination? Well, the truth is that I don't give much importance uh, to specific dates, but uh, the issue of Rabin's assassination is something that comes up in my conversation with my son. And actually, my son told me uh, and my wife during the last Gaza war that, uh, that we should learn from this country's history and uh, not... Uh, say out loud that uh, that we want to have peace because he said if I, I quote him if you would have listened in school then you would have known that uh, Rabin and Sadat and John Lennon were all killed because uh, they wanted peace and he said you know he said I want peace too but even more than that you know I want to have parents so so you can support peace but uh, you shouldn't uh, say that in public places that's That's the lessons that he got from Rabin's assassination. Yochai Meital. So, if for Edgar, Rabin could be a cat, for other Israelis, especially in recent years, Rabin can take on almost any shape or form. Act 5, Rabin is up for grabs. Shai Satran brings us this story. There was this moment toward the end of the 2015 election debate. It was a small moment, but I just can't get it out of my head. Naftali Bennett, the leader of Israel's nationalist right-wing party, and Zehava Galon, the leader of the leftist party, were going at it. They were arguing about the two-state solution and the settlements. She called him a fascist, and then this happened. Bennett says, for 20 years the left has held Rabin's murder over Bibi's head. I'm not part of that generation, he says. I'm part of a generation that doesn't apologize. I am not going to apologize for that. The reason this is such an amazing moment is that until that point, in an hour and a half debate, no one even mentioned Rabin's name. In a sense, Bennett just brought Rabin up out of the blue. But the truth is, over the last 20 years, Rabin is always there, just under the surface of any political argument, any talk of Palestinians, settlements, or terror. A few minutes later, Bennett was at it again. I'll tell you where I was when Rabin was murdered. During that same murder which you are blaming me for. I was an officer in combat in the south of Lebanon, protecting you. And you won't dare accuse me of the murder. I am proud of my opinions. Zehava Galon tries to counter. I didn't blame you of the murder, she says. And she didn't. But also, in a sense, she did. Rabin was murdered by a religious right-wing Jew. In the weeks and months before the murder, there was an escalating atmosphere of incitement against Rabin, seen as stemming from, or at the very least allowed by, the right-wing and religious leadership. Netanyahu, who was then the head of the opposition, was one of those held responsible. Dror More is the director of the Academy Award-nominated documentary, The Gatekeepers. He spends a lot of time thinking about that day, November 4th, 1995. The assassination of Rabin marked the lowest point which from there we are only going down. 
He's outraged at the reality which has allowed Bibi, just two decades later, to become the chief eulogizer at Rabin's memorials. Bibi walked in a rally where behind him there was a coffin, and on that coffin there was said, Rabin, the killing of the Zionism. What does it signal? He was sitting, oh, he was standing on the porch. Those horrible demonstrations that were in Jerusalem, in the Zion, Zion Square, where Rabin was portrayed as a Nazi SS officer. So the political leadership, people that are with us still in the Knesset today. Talking to Dror, a picture of Rabin and the murder emerges. Rabin was courageous in fighting for peace. The extreme right and the religious zealots were responsible for creating the national atmosphere in which the murder could occur. Rabin was the prime minister of, of, of Israel. He was assassinated because he tried to go for peace. The commemoration of Rabin is subdued into one camp, which is shrinking rapidly, which is the peace camp, let's call it like that, in Israel. And the other camp is growing bigger and stronger. This is a widespread sentiment in the Israeli left. We are the few that still uphold Rabin's memory, they say. And while it is undoubtedly true that sizable parts of Israeli society would rather forget Rabin altogether, it isn't that simple. You know, you try to say, I belong to his legacy. Okay? So say it. This is Erez Eshel. As you can hear, Erez has strong feelings concerning Rabin. He was from the labor. So what? So what? Because Rabin doesn't belong to the left. He's, he was a prime minister of the state of Israel, of the Jewish people around all of the world. And we so many times get confused, thinking that he belongs to one group. Erez is a right-wing religious educator, though he probably wouldn't like me labeling him as such. He is the founder of several pre-army leadership academies. Like Drol, he considers the murder to be the defining moment of his life and a watershed moment in Israel's history. But the similarities end there. Erez's Rabin is rather different than Drol's. For me, Rabin is a warrior that sacrificed his life in the independence war. For me, Rabin is the one that symbolized uniting Jerusalem, the Six-Day War. I'm a real Zionist. I will give my life for the state of Israel, for the land of Israel, and for the people of Israel. I do believe in all of the land of Israel. I do. I believe that Yitzhak Rabin believed in all of the land of Israel. And how does Rabin striving for peace factor in? You know, there was the endless campaign about peace. Many times the campaign for the peace was a campaign against the extremists, against the settlers. This fantasy, saying like, if Rabin would be alive, we would have peace now. And there were no stabbing and no explosions. Peace movement. With who do we do peace? We speak about in Gaza, Hamas, and in the West Bank, Abu Mazen. Many people in the non-extreme right agree with Erez. They think that the peace process has tainted Rabin's true legacy. Rabin is remembered as a military hero and the unifier of Jerusalem. In this narrative, the peace process becomes a late-life lapse of judgment, of which we need not be reminded too often. In addition, the tendency to scrutinize the murderer's religious and political background is considered misguided. Eagle, eagle is, is, not, is nothing for me. It's really nothing for me. The blame of the murder of a symbol of a prime minister is a blame on all of groups of the Israeli society. There was the loss of trust between left and right, secular and religious. We lost the respect. This is a major point of disagreement. For Dror, the murderer is instrumental. Not only that he succeeded in assassinating the prime minister and by that assassinating the priest process, he succeeded also because of this false kind of unity uh, that uh, was uh, swept over Israel after the assassination and to call Igal Amir as a, a weed. 
to isolate him as someone that was, and instead of really looking at the bigger picture and looking at the, at the camp that he came from, he represents thousands and thousands of people in that camp. Today, I think it's more in the tens of thousands of people. And in that sense, we failed. This kind of exchange over Rabin's identity, the responsibility for his murder and the lessons from the murder has been happening in one way or another for the past 20 years. But it hasn't been happening in a vacuum. Today, the peace process seems all but dead. Israel's politics have shifted to the right, and the left, or the peace camp, as Droll called it, has indeed shrunk considerably. Some of the ways in which Rabin is routinely discussed today would have seemed unacceptable 10 or 15 years ago. Around this time of year, there is always a lot of talk of Rabin's legacy. It's become a phrase, almost a cliché. In Israel, there are op-ed pieces in every paper with titles like Rabin's Real Legacy or In Search of Rabin's Legacy. The findings are dizzying in their variety. Some say his legacy is dialogue or pragmatism. Others make it about his personality traits, honesty, responsibility, humility. Prime Minister Netanyahu seems to find in Rabin inspiration for whatever necessary. Last year, speaking at the annual memorial ceremony for Rabin, Bibi talked about the Iranian threat, crediting Rabin as a leader who recognized the dangers of a nuclear Iran. I figured it was worth paying a visit to the official bearer of Rabin's legacy. A law was passed in 1997, establishing the Rabin Center in Tel Aviv as the official commemoration center for Rabin. My name is Annie Eisen. I handle international relations for the center. The Rabin Center is in a delicate position in the midst of Rabin's commemoration. Right off the bat, Annie made it clear that the center is government-funded, not political, and that they tell the full story. The full story tries to be all-inclusive. You can find Dror's Rabin here, the Rabin who went for peace. And Erez militarized Rabin? He's here too. There's definitely an attempt to keep Rabin appealing in the current zeitgeist. I don't, I don't agree that he was a leftist. I think he was a pragmatic, strong leader. I'm not saying he was a rightist. I think he was centrist and he was a pragmatic human being. We're doing him a disservice if we label him. I asked Annie if by not labeling Rabin, we aren't allowing people to exploit him for their own political agendas. Rabin's legacy is transcending all of that. He's becoming more inconsensitive for the left and for the right. I think it's wonderful that so many people feel inspired I think 20 years on, his legacy is more powerful than ever because people understand what a courageous leader he was, that he was able to, to understand, like, this is it. We don't have a choice. And if all these different people from different parts of society can tap into, into Robin and understand his greatness, wow, that's amazing, isn't it? So there we are 20 years after the murder. Robin's a courageous military leader, a great guy. A leftist, a hawk, a centrist. A reminder that violence is bad, that democracy is important, and that we should all just get along. Maybe this diluted, compromised, one-size-fits-all version of Rabin's legacy is all we as a society can handle at the moment. So be it. Shai Satran It used to be taboo, at least in most circles, to utter anything but total condemnation of the assassin, Igal Amir. No longer. Just this week, the Jerusalem soccer team, Betar Yerushalayim, was punished because its fans were chanting slogans praising Amir. The last person we talked to for this show lives right next to the stadium, and can hear those hateful chants from her living room. Act 6, Rabin is really gone. My name is Naomi Chazan. 
I'm a professor of political science and a former member of Knesset. I was a deputy speaker of the Knesset for quite some time. And my aunt. And your aunt. Of course, maybe I should have said that first. Nomi is one of the leaders of the Israeli left. She was first elected to the parliament as part of the Meretz party in 1992, when Rabin won the elections and became prime minister. She was a member of his coalition and was there at the demonstration the night he was killed. Of course I was at the rally. Uh, that was a period when we were at rallies of one form or another several times a week. Nomi left a bit early, right after Rabin spoke, so that she'd beat the traffic. By the time she got to Jerusalem, she had heard the news on the radio. But the words of that speech weren't the last ones she heard from Rabin. Uh, exactly two weeks later, a um, messenger came with a package, a small package, from the Prime Minister's office, and I opened it. Inside was a book and two letters. The first was written by Ethan Habil, Rabin's chief of staff. Do you know me? Even after the tragic events, uh, I thought you'd want to receive this on your birthday. It was my birthday. And uh, here is a letter and a book f- that Yitzhak wrote you and wanted you to have. Uh, And he prepared it before he was assassinated. And I opened further and found a letter, a birthday greeting, from Wabin. The letter was dated 18th November 1995, signed by Wabin. So two weeks after he was murdered. Exactly two weeks after. And I must admit, it's a chills down... My spine, and and the truth of the matter is, even when I talk about it, I talk about it rarely. Uh, But it's still, it's sort of, it's it's chilling. It's it's amazing. That was my uh, gift from Robin, in a sense, a present from somebody who had died and been assassinated for what he believed. Sort of a letter from the grave. Exactly. Yeah. Can you can you show that to me? Sure. Greetings. Your birthday is a day of celebration for all of us. Please receive my greetings for health and longevity. Mazal tov, congratulations, Yitzhak Rabin. What do you? What does it do to you? What do you feel reading this? Oh, Jesus, I haven't. Trust me, told I haven't read it out loud. I never read it out loud until today. But you, Mishi, have seen it several times because you, every time you come visit me, you go to it like a magnet. But what, what, do you, what does it make you feel? Uh, sad, reflect, 
I, I, it makes me feel like part of the Israel that I knew and loved is no longer here. But what is here, Nomi believes, is a deep, deep concern. Israel's democracy has never been the same since the assassination of Rabin in the 20 years that have elapsed. No one has had the courage that Rabin had to pursue peace. In many respects, peace has almost become a dirty word. And I would go one step further. Um, The fundamental source of Israel's strength is its democracy. And if it undermines its basic democracy, then it's, it's in trouble. Uh, I don't love Israel any less, maybe even more, but the challenges are much greater in the past 20 years than they have been or were at the time. That piece of music that you're hearing, that's Bach's Mass in B minor. But for, I'm going to say, almost every Israeli over 30... It's the Rabin song. It accompanied every broadcast surrounding his death, and every anniversary ever since. And it takes me right back to seventh grade, to a feeling of loss and pain and confusion. There's something visceral about it for me, and raw in that way that music or smells can put you back in an exact moment in time. This week I went to the big memorial rally for Rabin in the same square where he was killed 20 years ago. I've been going almost every year, but this time it felt different. There wasn't really anything emotional or painful about it. Bill Clinton spoke beautifully, Ruby Rivlin, our president, also said some nice things. But I was looking around and most of the crowd, kids from youth movements spanning the political and religious spectrum, were sort of having a good time. It was a happening. They hadn't been born when Rabin was murdered, and I can't blame them. It's hard to get all emotional about a historical figure. But for me, Rabin and his memory go together with sitting on sidewalks, lighting yortzite candles, and singing sad songs into the night with people you don't know. And I guess that's what time does. Maybe that satire program wasn't so wrong after all. Rabin hasn't been forgotten, but he's remembered in so many different, even conflicting ways, that they kind of cancel each other out. And maybe in his case, that's what being forgotten really means. That was the episode we released exactly five years ago, in November 2015, in order to mark the 20th anniversary of Rabin's assassination. It was produced by Shai Satran and Julie Subrin. 
Thanks to Davia Nelson, Niva Lanir, Uri Rosenwachs, Danny Zamir, David Harmon, Mati Friedman, Guy Eckstein, Elad Stavi, Jonathan Glicksberg, and Marie Ruder. We'll be back next time with a brand new Israel Story episode. So till then, Shalom Shalom and Yalla Bye! <laughs> שנוסיף עוד קיסם למדורה, איך עברו הזמנים בלעדיו, ושוב סתם. זהו שירים ממילים שאהב, על הנגב יורד מלחסתיו, כי רעות שכזאת לעולם, לא תתננו לשכוח אותה. נעשית השיר כמו זר של פרחים, ממילים אחרונות שראי שהוא שם, משתיקת הגברים, מדמעות הבוכים, מילדים שהדליקו נרות בכיכר. מפסוקי אהבה שנותרו על הקיר, מכל אלה נדליק לאהבה של תקרה. היא דועכת אולי, היא תשוב ותעיר, שיעושיר לשלום. Thank you.